Start where you are. When change comes, as it always does, it helps to know who you are. Welcome to episode 177 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Lucy, Raquel, and Suzanne. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Lucy, Raquel, and Suzanne, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'll be your host today. I want to start with a reading. This is an excerpt from the book by Pima Chodron, Start Where You Are, and it's from Chapter 6, also titled Start Where You Are. It's a little story about a Tibetan Buddhist monk named Milarepa. One evening, Milarepa returned to his cave after gathering firewood, only to find it filled with demons. They were cooking his food, reading his books, sleeping in his bed. They had taken over the joint. He knew about non-duality of self and other, but he still didn't quite know how to get these guys out of his cave. Even though he had the sense that they were just a projection of his own mind, all the unwanted parts of himself, he didn't know how to get rid of them. So first he taught them the Dharma. He sat on his seat that was higher than they were and said things to them about how we are all one. He talked about compassion and shunyata and how poison is medicine. Nothing happened. The demons were still there. Then he lost his patience and got angry and ran at them. They just laughed at him. Finally, he gave up and just sat down on the floor saying, I'm not going away, and it looks like you're not either. So let's just live here together. At that point, all of them left except one. Milarepa said, oh, this one is particularly vicious. We all know that one. Sometimes we have lots of them like that. Sometimes we feel that's all we've got. He didn't know what to do, so he surrendered himself even further. He walked over and put himself right into the mouth of the demon and said, just eat me up if you want to. Then that demon left too. I love this story because it speaks to me of the way in which, it speaks to me of a number of things. One is that that the first thing we do in our program of recovery is to surrender. We surrender to our powerlessness. We accept our powerlessness and that gives us the power to move forward into recovery. And I also like this story because, as it says, he had the sense that they were just a projection of his own mind, all the unwanted parts of himself. He didn't know how to get rid of them. And the way he got rid of them was by accepting them, by saying, okay, I'm here, you're here, I guess we have to live together. And then they left. And that, to me, feels like step six and seven, becoming willing and humbly asking to have our shortcomings removed. But in that humility, in that humility of being teachable, we also have to accept that these things are parts of ourselves. And so I see that in the story also. Finally, of course, there are some of our, some of our demons that are more vicious than others. And sometimes it's harder to accept them. It's harder to surrender to them. But I think our program teaches us that that's really the only way for us to move past them is to bring them into ourselves, to accept them, and then in all humility to ask for them to be gone. I titled this episode Knowing Myself because I feel that that's one of the real 
benefits, one of the, the gifts that my recovery has given to me is to know myself, not only to know myself, but to have a way to know myself. And I wanted to talk more about that. But I think, again, as, I, as we see in this story, that we're not able to vanquish our demons without first knowing them. And so knowing myself in that sense becomes a prerequisite to finding a better me, to making a choice to improve, making a choice to, to let go of those parts of me that no longer serve me and are now acting as my demons. I wanted to explore this concept of knowing myself through the steps, the different ways in which really all 12 of the steps have helped me to know myself better. I hope that through that, then I'll come to, we'll come to see what it really means to know ourselves, all the different ways in which we can know ourselves, all the different ways in which I can know who I am. I guess if you look at the steps, there's one step which is obviously be just because of the words in the steps about, uh, in that step about knowing yourself and that step four, the searching and fearless moral inventory. But what I've found is that each of these steps taught me something about myself. And each of these steps continues to teach me something about myself because as I have discovered, I'm never really done with the 12 steps that, that I can always take any of those steps to, to a deeper level maybe as the result of of working the following steps, then I'm ready to see that next level or I'm ready to see that next application of the step. So I'm going to start with step one because that's where we start at the beginning. And what did I find out about myself in working step one? Well, step one was the place where I had to break through my denial. I had to break through my view of the world as being the way I wanted it to be, I had to break through the notion that I could actually be in control of other people in my life. And I had to then let go of those things. So first, in order to let go of it, I had to recognize that it was there. I had to open my eyes. I had to see what was really happening around me and that what was really happening around me was not what I wanted to be happening around me. I had to see the world as it really was. And I had to see at least a little bit of my place in the world as it really was. And that my place was that I couldn't, I couldn't stop my loved one from drinking. At the very least, I was powerless over, over alcohol, just as she was powerless over alcohol. And I also had to recognize that, that she was affected by her drinking and that there was something going on there that was more than just choosing to drink. So the knowledge that I gained from step one of myself is that my view of the world is not realistic in many, in many cases. And that I need to, to let go of my need to control. I had, I think I had to recognize my need to control so that I could let go of it. In step two, where we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, I start to see, I start to know that I'm not the center of the universe, that everything does not revolve around me. But more than that, I start to see that there are things that that I can't fix on my own. So as I've said, I think in the past, I was raised to believe 
I was given the message as I was growing up that I could do anything. And in step two, I come to see the essential falseness of that message that there. So in step one, I, I found that I can't, I can't do everything. And in step two, I have to recognize that it's okay for me to ask for help. That, that because there are things I can't do, I may need to seek out the help of a power greater than myself, whatever that power might be. In coming to recognize that I can ask for help, I also saw that I had a resistance to asking for help, that I really wanted to do it all myself. And that's some more knowledge of myself, that when I can say to myself, yes, I, I do want to fix it myself. I, I do want to be the savior, but I can't. I need help. Then that opens me up to the next step, which is step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And in this step, in order to take this step, in order to work through this step and, and make some kind of a decision to turn some part of my will and my life over to the care of some sort of higher power, I had to come to see, I had to come to see how much, how much I want my will to prevail, how much I want things to turn out my way. Because an essential part of of truly making that decision in this step is to recognize that if I do that, that things are not going to necessarily turn out the way I think they should. That brings me face to face with how much I want them to turn out my way, how much I want to have the outcome that I think is best for me. And I think an example here is, is before I came into the program not understanding alcoholism, not understanding that my loved one was a victim of this disease of alcoholism. I thought it would be wonderful if she could just drink like a normal person, that that was what needed to happen. I had to let go of that desire, that need for for my outcome to be the one that that came true because it wasn't going to happen. It seemed fairly clear at that point it wasn't going to happen. And so step three brings me face to face with with coming to understand how much I want my will and to start to recognize when I'm trying to impose my will on a situation where that's not necessarily going to happen. And then, of course, I come to step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Such a short step for so much work. And in step four, I really do the deep work, the hard work of taking a detailed look at myself and really coming to see where I'm strong, where I'm not strong, where I like things about me, where I don't like things about me, or to put it in more neutral terms, what are my assets and what are my defects or my shortcomings. As I said at the beginning, step four is definitely the the step that has the most in it explicitly about coming to know myself. And as I worked through that step, as I worked through the first time I did step four, I worked through the questions in the book Paths to Recovery, which starts by questioning character traits that most of us consider assets, honesty, openness, and a bunch of others I can't remember right now. What are my skills? That sort of thing. I also came to realize how uncomfortable I am in openly openly admitting, openly claiming um, 
my assets. That's a little bit of self-knowledge that it would have been hard for me to find without doing that work. But I also started to get an inventory of, of where I'm strong, where I'm capable, where I already act in ways that I like. And then there were another, I don't know, 30 questions or so about character defects, faults, um, debits, uh, weaknesses, whatever you want to call them, things that I might not like about myself. That was not necessarily easy, but having already done the work to look at my positive traits, it was easier to, to look at the things I don't like. And I didn't have to answer yes to, to all of those questions, certainly. I say, no, I, I don't think I actually do that. I don't think there's a way in which I exhibit this trait. And, and that felt good, too. And where I had to say, yes, I have problems with honesty. I have resentments. I have hurt people. Where, where I had to say yes to those questions, I had the benefit of working this step together with a small group, an AWOL group. AWOL stands for a way of life or a way of living, where we were studying the steps together. And to see that I was not alone in any of my faults, in any of my shortcomings, that there was always somebody else, at least one somebody else in the group that shared that. And so also coming to know that in contrast to my fears going in, you know, I'm not uniquely broken, uh, that we're all human, we're all defective in some way, and we're also all strong in some way. We're also all whole in some ways. And that the work of the inventory loses some of its emotional punch when I come to understand that, when I come to see my fear of what might be wrong, my fear of what might be right. So really, at that step, I really fleshed out sort of self-knowledge at a, a feature level. What am I? I think it, it helped to flesh out that question of what am I? How do I act? Not so clear that, that it helped a lot with who am I? To think about that. Now we came to step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And the knowledge that I gained in step five was, I think, twofold. First, how much I really don't want to expose to somebody else what I see as failings, what I see as defects, how much fear I have that you will judge me for them and that you will judge me less than, you will judge me as a, as a bad person because of my shortcomings, my character defects, my wrongs as the step has it. Of course, the the beauty of actually working step five was to find that, again, my fear did not match reality. But it forced me to see that fear. It forced me to face that fear and move through it. It also let me see where I still, in some cases, was not ready to admit things. And that's another form of self-knowledge. There are things, there were things, I don't think there are any left, that I was not willing to admit to another human being out loud. Knowing that, that my work in the steps was not done. It's okay. Uh, it's, it's never going to be done. I do believe. And so then we have step six. We're entirely ready 
to have God remove all these defects of character. What happened in step six was not so much new knowledge about the how and the what of me as a process of coming to own what I found in step four and what I admitted in step five, coming to accept these things as part of me so that I could become ready to have them removed. I don't think I can honestly ask for something to be removed if I don't think it's, if I still don't think it's there. And that to me is, is the real work of step six. And in that process, also facing places where I was not willing to change and doing, doing the work to try to understand why I was not willing to change. An example, I think example might be helpful here. One of, one of my defects is, was, pretty much was, being chronically late for things like dentist appointments, doctor appointments, meetings, just, to, just about anything. Just being late, not necessarily very late, but being late almost all the time. I said, yeah, this is not good. This is, this is something that, that would be good to be gone, but why do I do this thing? Why do I, why do I feel some need to, to be late? I came to an understanding that I would feel somehow that I was wasting time if I was early. Okay, there's some self-knowledge, and that can help me to, to change behavior because once I go forward in step seven and ask my higher power to remove my shortcomings, then I will be given work to do. I will, I will need to practice a new way of being once that's been made possible. Understanding what in me will be blocking me from that new way of being becomes important to me. Okay, so there's something. I feel like I'm wasting time if I'm early. Well, what can I do about that? I could bring something with me to do. Okay, there's a step I can take. So I can start to do that. I can, I can bring something with me to do so that I don't feel like I'm wasting time if I'm early. And then what I start to find as I practice this behavior, and maybe I'm getting ahead a little bit, but I, I find that I'm more and more leaving enough time to, to get to the place that I need to be to get to the doctor's office, to find parking when I go to the dentist, to walk up to a meeting because part of the, part of the thing that was urging me to be late has been relieved. And once I start to feel then the relief of not being late, because being late was stressful in, a, in and of itself, and so I feel the, the reduced stress by not being late, then I actually am able to start letting go of this, this need to feel that I'm wasting time, this need to feel that I'm not wasting time. Let's get that right. I can replace being busy with something else. Maybe I can replace being busy with a little bit of meditation. Because how many times have I said, oh, I don't have time to meditate? Well, guess what? If I get to the dentist's office five minutes early, I could take five minutes to sit there and quiet in a meditation. I tried to do that at the doctor's office the other day. I went in, I had gone for a run, and so I didn't have a lot of stuff with me. And, and I went to the doctor's office just to get blood drawn. So I didn't think it was going to take very long. And I got there, and they're like, okay, uh, we'll call you when we're ready for you. So I sat down, and, and I thought, well, I don't have my phone with me. I don't have a book with me. I don't have my computer with me. I'll just sit here and meditate a little bit. 
And it was a challenge because in the waiting room, of course, they had a TV going with the news and it kept distracting me. But I think I got a little bit of meditation done. And so again, yeah, I felt like I was doing something, but it was not being busy if you, if you see the distinction. And so here's a case where finding that knowledge in step six of some of the why, right? I had the how and the what, and now I'm starting to get into some of the why. And in this case, understanding a little bit of the why, let me first change my behavior and then also change the way I felt about being late, about, or about being early and wasting time and brought me to a place where I could actually do something that I never felt I had time to do in, in that unwasted time. So, I don't know, maybe that example makes sense to you. Made sense to me, sort of. Step seven, we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. I don't know if there's a whole lot of self-knowledge here, a whole lot of knowing myself better, except in that the definition of humility that I like to go with this step is being teachable being able to see, to continue to see who I am, what I am, how I act, and to start to see, to be able to receive an understanding of a different way to be, a different way to act. So there's a little bit of self-knowledge there. And again, as as I said earlier, I view step six and seven as owning what I want to change and and then asking for change. And once I've asked for change, I feel that my experience has been that that my higher power has perhaps removed emotional or mental blocks that have in the past prevented me from acting differently. And so now I, I can act in a way that is more in line with the person that I want to be and more in line with the way I want to act, but I still have to practice that. Now, what do I learn in step eight about myself? What, I, what I've learned in step eight about myself is the ways in which I have harmed others in the past and the ways in which some of my shortcomings have led me to hurt others, whether through action or through inaction. And this also has been a process for me that sometimes it it really takes a while for me to understand that I have harmed somebody and to start to see how. So although the step although the step says made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. The way I have to read that is made a list of all the persons who at this moment I can see that I have harmed and became willing to or became willing to be willing to make amends to them. Understanding again that this is a life a lifetime process, but that the more people I can make amends to, the the faster my recovery will move, really. The less baggage I'll be carrying around, the lighter my life will feel. It's again, it's a step of self-knowledge. And all of the self-knowledge that I've gained in the past helps me to start to see how I have harmed people. Because then I have to move forward to the next step, step nine, which says, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I can't make complete and real amends without knowing what the harm is. Just saying, you know, I was a real asshole a few years ago, and I'm sorry for that, doesn't feel to me like amends. Saying, I realize that in the past 
I have ignored your opinion because it didn't agree with mine, and I have put you down because I felt you were wrong for not agreeing with me. And I'm going to do my best to not do that in the future. That's really more like amends, but being able to make that kind of amend, being able to make that kind of amend requires that I be able to say at least some of the details about about what I did and how I did it. So I have to know that. The other thing that I come to know more deeply in step nine is the shame that I still have, the fear that I have that you will reject me if I admit what I did wrong. And again, as in step five, uh, a fear of being judged for you know, being an asshole. But I also can find in step nine, I can also come to really know how deeply I have gained in being able to be honest and having the courage to say those things that I don't want to say. That's a plus all on its own. That's a plus that's on top of the plus of knowing that I have started to to clear the slate, that I don't have to carry guilt over stuff I did in the past, over stuff I did in the past that hurt somebody. Okay, moving on. Step 10, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And here, this is, this is really a continuation of, of steps four through nine, and recognizing that in the process of doing those steps, we did the best that we could, but that we still have more depth to know. We still have more, more what's and how's and why's to, to come to understand. And we have more to clean up. And so step 10 is, is really saying, don't stop now. Don't think you're done. Don't think that you know yourself completely because you've done all the steps before here because you don't. And, and so in practicing step 10, I continue to learn about myself. I continue to know myself more deeply. Step 11, step 11 says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And the way in which I see self-knowledge coming out of step 11 is that through prayer and meditation, my higher power may not be the only thing that I improve my conscious contact with. I also improve my conscious contact with myself, with my spirit. And this is the step that for me helps me to come to know who I am, not just what I am and how I act and why I act, but really who I am in this process of sitting quietly with myself, of asking my higher power for guidance and listening is where I start to know me where I start to know the person that I am, the spirit that I am. And I don't, I, I'm having a hard time making this any more explicit other than sort of the wholeness of myself rather than all the bits and pieces, all the what's and all the how's and all the why's, but the wholeness of, of who I am. This happens through, through that prayer and meditation, which I really started, probably started back in step three, but which step 11 urges me, requires me to continue, to continue to improve that conscious contact with myself. Part of that is, you know, getting out of my head, stopping the, or at least slowing down and muting the chatter in my head that's going all the time. 
Um, and just, just being there with myself, which ain't easy, still not easy, but it's a thing I'm learning to, it's a thing I'm learning to do. I'm learning to, to be a little bit more comfortable sitting still, sitting quietly, not talking to myself all the time. It's a process. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. As I work step 12, I really start to see more explicitly the ways in which I have had a spiritual awakening. And what is a spiritual awakening? That's always the question when we get to step 12. I just think about waking up. You know, It doesn't have to be anything more than that. I was in a haze, in a fog, half asleep before I started on these steps. I was in a haze that was partly brought on by trying to live in an alcoholic situation. I was hiding myself from the world and hiding the world from myself because it wasn't acting the way I wanted it to. And in the process of waking up, I see the world more clearly and I see myself more clearly. And so, if nothing else, step 12 lets me look back and see how much more I have come to know myself than I did when I came into the program than I did a few years ago. And I can continue to to examine. I can continue to see the ways in which I've, I have woken up even more. The, the 12 steps of this program, all of them, have helped me to know myself. And in knowing myself, because of knowing myself better, I can live life more fully. I can live life more happily. I can have more serenity. I can know what's important and what's not important. And I can focus on the things that are important to me. And I can let go of the things that are not important to me. So that whereas I might have felt like there were all these things that I had to do and I had to, had to get them all done. And I had, there were too many things for me to do. And I didn't have time to do them all. And I might have heard the story of the, the jar with the rocks and the pebbles and the sand so many times, you know. If I fill the jar up with sand, I don't have room for the rocks. But if I put the rocks in first, then I can pour the pebbles into the spaces between the rocks, and I can pour the sand into the space between the pebbles. And in my life, if I do the most important things first, I still have room for the things that are less important. But if I do the less important things first, I may not have room for the things that are important. Okay, so... You've probably heard that story. I've heard that story a bunch of times. The trick, the hard part for me, was which are important. There are some things that are maybe obviously important, like, well, I have to have a job so that I can have money to live. And that seems important. You know, I have to have food to eat. I have to have a, a shelter from the weather, especially living in Michigan in the winter. Okay, so this is important, but what does it mean to put those first? And what are the things that are not basic needs that are important? What are the things that are important to my spirit? What are the things that are important to me as a person, me as a human being, rather than me as a human doing? Without knowing myself, there, I had no way of, of answering those questions. If you had asked me a decade ago, what are your values? What are the things that you value in life? What, what do you see as your mission in life? I could not have answered that question. I had no way of, of knowing the answer to that question. 
working the 12 steps, working the program of Al-Anon has given me tools where I can start to find answers to those questions. I can start to answer those questions as I did in episode 101, titled Looking Back, Looking Ahead. I can start to to list out what are my values, what are my aspirations, and and then I can start to look at how am I living in alignment with my values or not. And without the tools that I, I gained here, without the self-knowledge that I gained here, there was, would have been no way I could do that. I just want to wrap up by noting that this program, these 12 steps, and everything that goes around them has really helped me to come to see my demons, to accept them, and thus to banish them. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. The first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 177, is by Jimmy Eat World, their song The Middle. And I found found a website that uh, had songs about being yourself, and, and this website um, asserts that the message of this song is that you don't have to be the same as everyone else to be liked or accepted. As the song says, live right now. Yeah, just be yourself. It doesn't matter if it's good enough for someone else. And I think that knowing myself then lets me see that it's good enough for me and that it doesn't matter what someone else thinks. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our life in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. And it's just me. So my meetings and my life this week. Yeah. Went to a meeting yesterday and our topic was step one. And I was again reminded that regardless of how I might prejudge someone based on their appearance or their actions, when I keep an open mind. I can learn something from them. And and that happened in this meeting where uh, somebody came in that hadn't been in the meeting before and and I made some judgments about that person based on how they looked. And of course, then when they when they opened their mouth, out came a bunch of stuff that I totally identified with. And so, thanks higher power. Thanks for that lesson. When thinking back, thinking back over the week, and about, you know, actually this theme of knowing myself, because this weekend, actually, I guess tomorrow, um, is the uh, the holiday of Halloween in the United States. Uh, and this is not a holiday, I guess, that's celebrated everywhere. A friend of mine just came back from Australia, and he said that his his relatives down there had a lot of questions like, what is this thing? I mean, people just go up to somebody else's house and, and they get candy? What the heck? What's going on? And and he had to try to explain it to them. Uh, so this is an American holiday where we dress up in costumes and children at least go around the neighborhood knocking on doors yelling, trick or treat, and we give them candy, which is a treat. And back when I was a kid, if you didn't get candy, then you had the right to, to play a trick of some sort. And sometimes those tricks were relatively harmless, and sometimes they weren't so. Not that I ever did anything bad, but I'm not sure I actually played any tricks at all, ever, now that I think about it. But anyway, um, now it's mostly about about giving out candy to kids running around the neighborhood in costumes. As adults, we don't do the running around door-to-door asking for candy, although we might accompany children. 
because it is happens at night and it is dark and people are fearful. So we do that. Anyway, off topic totally. So at work on Friday, we had uh, a Halloween celebration at lunch. The company brought in food. Some people dressed up in costumes. There was a little costume contest who had the best costume, etc. cetera. Uh, and there were some other activities that we could participate in. And I'm just not really, you know, into this idea of, of dressing up in costumes for, for this holiday. And in the past, I have felt it necessary to sort of make excuses. Oh, well, I forgot, or I didn't have a good costume, or I, you know. And now, I just don't do it. And I don't feel that I have to explain myself to anybody. I don't feel that I have to justify myself to anybody. I just don't do it, because it's not something that is something I'd like to do. It's not something that I want to do, and and I don't have to. And again, I think that that ability to be able to to know myself, to know that this is not something that I want to do, and that I don't have to please other people by doing something I don't want to do. I think that's that's the big thing. So that's it. Actually, was very comfortable, and I think a couple like last year, I think I just didn't go. Like I didn't want to be there, not in costume, so I didn't go. And how crazy is that? Like give up a free lunch because you don't want somebody to see you're not wearing a costume. Not so. So you know, progress is good. The other thing that that happened this weekend is we had another uh, one of our monthly open talks, and this talk featured some Alateen speakers, both Alateen sponsors, people who had been previously in Alateen, and people who were still in Alateen, uh, talking about their experience and either as a sponsor, uh, what it was like being an Alateen sponsor, uh, how maybe being a sponsor had helped them, and as people who were or had been members of Alateen about how the program in some cases probably literally saved their life. It was really moving. It it was longer than our, our open talks usually are, but it was totally worth it. And I hopefully have got going to line up uh, at least one episode uh, of the of the podcast talking to uh, Alateen sponsors about what it's like being a sponsor, about how they carry the message, uh, about how um, you know how they do outreach to to let people know that that Alateen is there and about sort of what what it's what it's like being a sponsor and um, maybe encourage some other people some of you to be I don't know then thinking about that I thought well I know in the past several people have raised the the possibility of getting some Alateens on the show to talk about their experience and I now actually know some Alateens. Uh, and in particular, I know some people who have, in effect, graduated. And so um, I don't have the worry about uh, bringing somebody under 18 into the into the podcast and, and possible complications that might arise from that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to trying to put together uh, an episode where some people who, who have been in Alateen or older uh, members of Alateen talk about their experience. Because... One of the things that I came away from yesterday was really how valuable the Alateen program has been for these young people and sometimes how hard it is for them to even know that the program exists, um, to get to the program, and and also how it can be sometimes frustrating for the Alateen sponsors when it seems like nobody's coming. 
and what we might be able to do about that. So lots of stuff there to think about and to uh, to talk about. So I look forward to, to doing that at some point in the future. So I'm not sure exactly what uh, what we'll be talking about in the in the near future, but uh, keep calling, keep writing, keep suggesting topics, and we'll be here. And you can do that. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Yeah, call right now if you want, 734-707-8795. It's just a voicemail number. So leave your message and share your story, share your questions, share your topic ideas. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have you join our conversation here and share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions. All that information about how to get a hold of us, by the way, is on the website. If you go to therecoveryshow.com slash contact, or just go to therecoveryshow.com and pull down the menu or in the menu at the top of the page, find the Contact Us link, and you'll find all the information on that page. We will take a short break before we look at what we got in the emails. Second musical selection, also available on the website, is Crazy by Gnarls Barkley. And I just got a few lyrics here. This is really a song about, it's it's to some extent a song about self-acceptance, but it's also a song about maybe recognizing that you don't know everything about yourself. And maybe you're not crazy, but, but you still have some work to do. And then it went well with the topic. Here's some lyrics. Come on now. Who do you, who do you, who do you think you are? Ha ha, bless your soul. You really think you're in control. And uh, as I said, that's that's certainly where I was before I found the steps, before I found Alamo. In this section of the podcast, we share your contributions. And I got an email from Nikki who shares some of her story and I, I got to say that, well, this grabbed me. Hi, Spencer. About a year ago, I went to my doctor in absolute desperation. I felt like my life was out of control, and I was losing control of my behavior each day. I was crying over little things, getting angry at everyone, and felt I had control over nothing in my life. After two visits to my general practitioner and some pointless surveys filled out on a tablet, I was referred to a cognitive behavioral therapist. Boy, was I in for a shock. I definitely had some work to do on why I was losing control, anxiety, and how to separate myself from things I can versus cannot control. After a few visits, I was no longer angry or crying, and my psychologist told me she thought I had the tools to use to move forward with no further appointments, but that she recommended I go to Al-Anon. Al-Anon. Well, how could that be? I didn't like my husband's drinking, but I surely didn't think that this was the reason I felt crazy. Or was it? Although I have yet to attend an official meeting, mostly due to my rural location, I did find your podcasts, and they have been instrumental in getting me to the point I'm at today, and for that, I'm forever grateful. Some of the points you made in episode 163 really hit home with me, and I realized that not only am I not alone, but there are other people out there who really do know what I've gone through, and I'm continuing to go through daily. Literally, every single thing I've endured has been experienced by one of your guests, and it's such a comfort to know that I'm not alone, even though I felt that I was for more years than I care to admit. At the moment, I have the most clarity I've ever had, partially thanks to my cognitive therapy and partially to your show. I have clarity on the fact that my husband is indeed an alcoholic, 
something that I have been in denial about probably since we started dating, but for sure since my pregnancy with my first child 13 years ago. I can't believe I didn't see it. I have clarity that I'm ready to have a better life for me and my kids. Clarity and realizing the damage to my kids may be irreparable, but I need to stop the cycle now, and the behavior needs to stop. Clarity that I have failed to live for the past nine or so years, and so on. I've said no to so many desires, dreams, experiences, friendships, events, and more, because my husband doesn't like people or crowds, doesn't feel like doing this or that, etc. His favorite pastime is to drink at home, alone in the garage or in his chair, most nights passing out with a beer between his legs. Where I have been wrong in this, I have lived to enable him without realizing it, ignoring friends, not inviting people over, not discussing hot topics for fear of retribution, not going out with friends, not wanting my kids to have friends over, covering up for him, making excuses for him, calling in sick for him, being his DD. The list is endless. Currently, we are sleeping in different rooms and speak only when required to. I'm finding myself angry because, miraculously, he did not drink, at least in front of me, for three nights last week. Something that hasn't occurred for one night, let alone three in the past two years at least. He broke that Friday night by purchasing two 12-packs plus a 15-pack of beer, to which he added another six-pack on Sunday night to top off his weekend. All gone by this morning. He is a functioning alcoholic. He is rarely late for work. People would never believe how much alcohol he can put away. There has been a gradual incline of drinking over the years. I used to be happy with three days in a row of not drinking, though it feels like ages ago since that has happened. Then two then one, and finally spent the last two years drinking daily, and I'd venture a modest guess at a minimum of six beers per night, with a more likely 12 being the minimum, and on a good night 15 to 20 on weekend nights, which start Thursdays for him. That's not to mention any hidden or snuck drinks. They have been plentiful, too. The amount of pain I've been through in the past years I won't dwell on. I've shed too many tears already, and I refuse to take this on as my problem any longer. I cannot change it, it's not my fault, and I'm no longer having it be my problem to fix. I'm currently booked for an appointment this week with my psychologist to discuss the best way to tell my children, and a next step seeing a lawyer about filing for divorce and getting him out of our home. I know a lot of your listeners, including yourself, have stayed with your partner through the process. I feel unable and unwilling to endure another moment with the man who has accused me of a lot of horrible things over the years, called me a lot of names, told me he wants a divorce on three occasions, then apologized, and even had his hand on my throat once. I've tried talking to him about his drinking in the past, and he doesn't think he has a problem refuses to talk about it or walk away. Alternatively, he's even accused me of having the drinking problem. If he told me today that he would quit, I still don't know if I could stay. I think it's important for listeners to know that they don't have to stay in a situation just because the person is in the grips of a disease. It's okay to leave. You don't have to live with it. You can leave and live the life you've been given before it passes you by. Forever grateful, still listening, moving forward and not looking back. Nikki. And and thank you, Nikki, for your, your openness and your honesty and the rawness of your story. I'm sure that somebody's listening right now who identifies with it and maybe hearing your your words can help them to to move forward into their recovery process. I'm gonna say thank you to Nika for a review in iTunes titled Just What I Was Looking For. This is such a wonderful podcast. It is absolutely everything I didn't even know I needed. Um, and I just got to say, wow, that's everything I didn't know I needed. That's that's quite quite the compliment. Thank you. iTunes reviews do help to make us easier to find by those who are seeking recovery. So if you feel that you can, please go leave a, leave a review. Thank you. 
It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We'll have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Lucy, Raquel, and Suzanne did. We've also put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, direct them to therecoveryshow.com, or just listening to us. We are here for you. The last song selection that I picked is I Choose by India Ari. You can listen again to this at therecoveryshow.com slash 177. Bunch of lyrics here. I couldn't couldn't decide what to cut out, so I kept kept a whole bunch. Because you never know where life is going to take you, and you can't change where you've been. But today I have the opportunity to choose. Here am I now looking at 30, and I got so much to say. I got to get this off my chest. I got to let it go today. I was always too concerned about everybody would think. But I can't live for everybody. I got to live my life for me. I pitched a fork in the road of my life, and ain't nothing going to happen unless I decide to be the best I can be. I choose to be authentic in everything I do. My past don't dictate who I am. I choose. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.